Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Well, first of all, welcome And I want you to know that today I am wearing an outfit from this fabulous European boutique called Betty Ryder. It's got a red door on the front of the boutique and it's located at the Plaza at Preston Center. So should you need something really special with yummy fabrics, go and see my friend Betty Ryder. And now I want to introduce the guests that I have with me today. You know, there's nothing more important than our eyesight, right? I remember a time that um, I was having some something got in my eye, and I was in the shower, and I couldn't I couldn't read the the shampoo and the conditioner. I put the conditioner on first, and even then I thought, oh my goodness, how blessed to have sight. Well, the gentleman who gave me 2020 vision again after years of not having it is my guest today, Dr. Chip Fagadal. Thank you for having me. (laughs) We're going to have so much fun today just talking about, yes, some of the technical things about eyes and what the new things are, and but I also want to get into just what about you as a doctor and and how you came to be so. Is that okay with you? Sure, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Well, let me start there. And uh, for the audience, I would like to share your credentials because I know how important that is in the medical industry. So Dr. Fagadaw uh, went to school in Dallas at uh, St. Mark's and then undergraduate at Yale University School of Medicine, doctorate at Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, internship at Baylor University Medical Center, residency at Yale again, University in New Haven, Connecticut, and a fellowship at Wilmer Eye Institute at John Hopkins. I'd say you know what you're doing. Well, thank you. Very blessed to have had many good mentors and uh, great exposure when I was going through my academic years. Well, tell us about that. Did you, when you were going through the, um, the medical uh, your residency and all of that, did you just know that ophthalmology was going to be your practice? Well, I became interested in ophthalmology when I was in medical school. I didn't really have much exposure to it until my fourth year mm-hmm. when I took a clerkship and worked uh, not only with people at Southwestern Medical School, but also a man named William Harris here in the community mm. who was a pioneer in implant surgery. And I loved the tangible nature of what was accomplished in ophthalmology. In other words, there was an intervention that was recognizable, easily recognizable for the patient, and it was a quality of life enhancement that uh, was so rewarding to be engaged in that uh, I, I really, in a sense, changed my mind. I was initially interested in going into 
internal medicine or a specialty branch of internal medicine. But as of the fourth year when I was exposed to ophthalmology, I identified uh, that as my passion. And ophthalmology, of course, offers the opportunity to be involved on the medical side with mm -hmm. regard to diagnosis and medical treatment, infections, inflammatory problems, glaucoma, but also offers the surgical aspect. And in our case, in our practice, we specialize in cataract surgery, what's called premium lens or, or uh, premium implant surgery, mm -hmm. along with uh, corneal treatments, glaucoma um, um, interventions, et cetera, but on a, on a surgical basis, primarily cataract surgery. Okay, gosh. So, all right, it took you four years into your fourth year when you were in medical school. I'm curious about, I've always wanted to ask doctors this, when did you decide you even wanted to be a doctor? I, I had a pediatrician named Floyd Norman who was very well recognized in Dallas. He was really, in a sense, uh, one of the deans of, of pediatrics. And, uh, in fact, his wife, uh, Gladys Fashina, was uh, also a pediatrician at the medical school. I happened to train with her when I went through medical school, so that was a, a, fun, a fun double connection. <laughs> but when I was a kid uh, and I would visit the pediatrician, I was so impressed by Dr. Norman uh, and really so fond of him and notwithstanding the shots that I had to get from time to time. <laughs> he made it okay? He was, he was just terrific. He was, he was such a gentleman and, and wise, and uh, uh, so uh, he had a di very dignified bearing, but also uh, easy uh, to, to, uh, to understand and easy to connect with. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that was the stimulus. That and uh, an exposure I had uh, to my uncle, uh, who lived in another town, but who was uh, an, an internist mm -hmm. and a family doctor. And he was also very influential uh, in the sense that I admired him and he was uh, doing great work, it seemed to me, and looked like something that would, would be of interest to me. Also, frankly, I've always enjoyed science. So, uh, medical science, biomedical science, biology. When I was a kid, all of those, all of those uh, academic exercises were compelling to me. You were just good at them. Well, I I, I was pretty good at them, and 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 I enjoyed them, and I I thought it would uh, be good to apply that that interest mm -hmm. professionally. Interesting. What else were you interested in as a kid? Just just. What were you like as a little boy? Well, I was uh, I was a, a competitive swimmer. Oh. And and actually, uh, I was I was a pretty good uh, competitive swimmer. I was all state and got to participate in uh, not only uh, national events but international events. Wow. Uh, it was it was a very very demanding sport, as you can imagine. Swimming is a lot of people regard it as somewhat monotonous in terms of the training that's required but hmm. even as a little kid when i was eight or nine years old in workouts i would uh, i would get into the zone so to speak and i enjoyed workouts i enjoyed uh, the camaraderie of my teammates i enjoyed being on relay teams and competing with uh, with with others against uh, other teams and uh, as i said i was uh, reasonably good at it so it was it was something that that uh, came naturally. I also had great exposure then to mentors, just as I had a great uh, 
a medical mentor as a young man, as a, as a kid. I also had uh, terrific coaches in swimming who mm-hmm. I was uh, exposed to and, um, and derived great, uh, great uh, uh, teaching from. You know, mentoring is just such an important thing. Are you doing any of that now? Outside of the practice, I know you mentor every day. Well, I, I, I have historically been involved uh, at the medical school. I'm not doing as much of that at this point, but in the past I've, I've been involved in, in uh, uh, surgical instruction and uh, also some, some mentoring uh, of younger physicians uh, who come out of their training and are looking to understand what practice is like or what specialty they should choose. Oftentimes, I'll get phone calls from friends or or kids from family who are a part of uh, you know uh, families that uh, that I've been uh, close to over the years who I'll mentor. So it it does happen occasionally. Like help my son understand if he even wants to be a right. physician. Sure. Right. Sure. You know uh, your practice itself, and of course I know this because it's the practice I go to. One of the things that I've noticed, and I'd like you to talk about this, on the show I always try to get people like you to maybe just pass on some things that are lessons that you've learned or things you really believe strongly about. Because I just think it's so important today, Dr. Chip, which is what you go by, Dr. Chip Fagadaw, to um, to help put the word out there to anyone who is either an emerging leader or an established leader the importance of really being clear on what they stand for what is their brand and what do they demonstrate every day in their work as their brand one of the things that I've noticed from the time I uh, became one of your patients was just the culture and how you treat people so is there anything around that that is something you stamp into that practice as a lesson? Well, start with the fact that any medical practice, any successful medical practice, relies on an, an array of individuals to deliver that care. And our general philosophy in our office is, is um, that each employee counts critically in the delivery Mm -hmm. of the service and in the in the not only in the quality of the care that's delivered but also of course the perception on the part of the patient with regard to the care that's being delivered or that has been delivered for example somebody comes into the office the the people that we have at the front desk are critical players if you walk into a medical office and you are not greeted warmly or in a friendly manner, it's off-putting. It is. And so even by walking through the front door, your first exposure to our office or our care philosophy, mm-hmm. that's got to be demonstrated by the people at the front desk. The same holds for our employees who uh, work to get people uh, out of the door at the exit and take care of their referrals or take care of their uh, uh, billing problems, etc. The technical staff in the back of the office where I'm spending most of my time is outstanding and I 
see those people continuously through a morning or an afternoon. Mm-hmm. We are uh, coherent in our activities and are working uh, closely with one another to deliver the clinical care, but the administrative staff is equally important with regard to not only executing the whole process, but also in terms of delivering a message to the patient. There you go. So if all goes well and an individual coming into our office has difficulty at the exit, Mm -hmm. it can turn out to be in their minds a sour experience. So it's a whole experience. So every everybody, every employee in our office is critical to the to the to the care that's being delivered and the perception that's being delivered. And a success, any successful medical practice has got to depend on everyone in the office doing their job. Well, not every medical practice does that. That's why I brought it up. So what what do you say to your staff to build the culture and and what do you tell them and how to? work with a patient or how to think about a patient when i was in my training in medical school before i got into ophthalmology uh, at ut southwestern Mm -hmm. i had several mentors speaking of mentors again i had several mentors who were absolutely outstanding and i was very very fortunate to work with a man named ron anderson after I was working with him as a medical student, and he was on the faculty at that time in internal medicine. He was chosen to lead Parkland Hospital. So many of your uh, many of your listeners or viewers will know that name, Ron Anderson. He was absolutely a spectacular man, a great human being. He delivered to me several lessons that I never forgot, and. One of them, actually probably the most important in terms of delivering good medical care, quality medical care, he said, treat every patient as though he or she were a family member. In other words, see your patients as family members Mm -hmm. in that you deliver the care that you would want yourself that you want we would want to access yourself or that you would want any of your family members to receive in any circumstance within the healthcare system whatever the specialty and i've found that if you generally hold yourself to that and it's not always easy and i'm not saying that we're perfect but if you try to hold yourself to that standard perforce you do well and at the very least, you're doing your best to deliver the type of care that you would want to receive yourself. You know, Dr. Fagadaw, that is that's something that any business could do. I mean, what if we walked into a retailer and the clerk thought of me or you as a family member? Right. Wouldn't that be a different treatment? Right, right. I think that's across the board. I think that's great. And then you mentioned something uh, that I don't know if it has anything to do with what you just said or not, but you said to me once something about demonstrating intellectual honesty. What did you mean by that? Well, in in the case of, uh, let's say, recommending a surgical treatment, Mm -hmm. 
you we we all stay abreast of the literature we all go to national meetings we engage in continuing medical education we are exposed to a wide variety of technical technological uh, or medical slash clinical options Mm -hmm. and it's important to determine with all of that information which road to take with regard to advising a patient or delivering a particular procedure i see okay so there may be a new technology for example that's been touted either by the company or by a given physician at a national meeting and you study it you talk to colleagues you um, maybe Ex- explore the procedure by way of performing uh, several of uh, several of uh, those procedures uh, in your own office. But if everyone else is doing it in your community and you don't feel that it's appropriate, you don't feel that it's the best for the patient. Mm-hmm. You've got to be intellectually honest with yourself and with the patient. I see in terms of the advice. And just because uh, some folks are doing something in California uh, (laughs) or New York, it doesn't mean that uh, it's the best for your patients. And intellectual honesty, when I was going through my my residency training at Yale, I had a, uh, a professor, actually the chairman of the department, who was very, very rigorous with us and, and, and frankly, sometimes uh, could be difficult. But he demanded intellectual integrity, intellectual honesty. He demanded straight talk. Straight talk. He, 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 he was interested uh, not in a lot of guesswork um, or a lot of supposition um, or what-ifs. He wanted the details he wanted the best accumulated information you could gather and he wanted an intelligent appraisal and evaluation of that information based on learning based on study based on exposure to books lectures etc but the information that we brought to the table needed to be organized Hmm. scrutinized and to the best of our ability um doing it it, right doing it right i mean (laughs) in other in other words uh, no nonsense no nonsense straight talk Mm -hmm. and being uh true to the patient's best interest that that thank you that is really clear now and and you did that when you discussed with me what procedure you were going to use so there are some new procedures and machines and all of this talk to us about what is the latest and greatest i'm going to take it very specifically for people who are at the point where they are beginning to get cataracts or have them um Tell us about what is that intellectual 
integrity that you have at your office that stands out from maybe other practices? Well, let me let me say this first of all. The technology in ophthalmology, this is true throughout medicine, but the technology, and I can only speak authoritatively in my own field, the technology has advanced enormously, mm-hmm. not only over the last 30, 35 years with regard to cataract extraction and implant surgery, intraocular lens implant surgery, but even uh, more so within the last five to 10 years. And by that, I mean the following. When I first started in practice, implants were brand new. I mentioned Bill Harris uh, earlier. I went into practice with him. He was a pioneer in implant surgery. Hmm. And we removed the cataract, we placed an implant in the eye, we essentially restored the anatomy of the eye, the original anatomy of the eye by so doing. And we got rid of all those heavy cataract glasses that uh, (laughs) our grandparents used to wear after they had cataract surgery. Uh The younger people in your audience won't understand or recognize this, but when I first started my training in 1979, we were removing cataracts and putting no implants in the eye and people afterwards had to wear thick coke bottle glasses uh-huh. which themselves stor- distorted vision so once we could put an implant in the eye we were essentially recreating the original anatomy of the eye well yes. those implants over the course of time have gotten better 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 mm-hmm. so that years ago when we Uh, would put an implant in the eye, we would uh, know that an individual would need uh, significant correction afterwards, meaning uh, either spectacle correction, eyeglasses, Mm -hmm. or contact lenses. Uh, But as uh, time has uh, moved along here and and we've evolved uh, the, the implants, we're now at this point, and you're the beneficiary of this yourself, we're now able to deliver to people uncorrected, that is to say vision without glasses or contacts, uncorrected, excellent distance and reading vision simultaneously. Amazing. And that's a, that's a liberating oh. function. In a sense, and I tell patients this all the time and, and remark it even to my wife, uh, it's so extraordinary as we get older how few of our physical capabilities improve (laughs) right never admit it (laughs) but but when you have cataract surgery with an implant particularly these new types of implants that deliver the range of vision Mm -hmm. in an uncorrected way without glasses you're you're uh you're restoring youth in a, in a really an extraordinary fashion. So this is one of the few things in life that physically can get better for you, maybe better than it's ever been. Because we see people all the time, as you can imagine, who've been wearing glasses since they were in third grade. I bet. And so here they are suddenly 65 years old, 70 years old, 90 years old, not wearing glasses or wearing glasses in a very limited way. It's just amazing. That's that's a remarkable thing. And so um, in terms of my own original enthusiasm for ophthalmology, it has only grown over a period of time by virtue of the things we can do. 
It must excite you every time you get in that surgery it's, room. It's, it's, a, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing to be able to do it. Well, I, I have to say that it was surprising to me, and that's why I ask about the newest and greatest, what you're able to do. You said it will only take me, you, 20 minutes, and I'm thinking, oh, I just don't understand that. I'm going to be you're going to be operating on my I mean it was it was scary I don't care what anybody says it's scary well I'm going to say to anybody that's listening don't be scared because that's exactly what happened and then you said and go home rest a while come back after I think you had me come back that day around four hours later and I thought come back after I've had somebody cut my <laughs> I don't even want to go there what you did but the exciting thing is technology has come to that point and I just think it's incredibly as you said it must be incredibly gratifying to walk out of surgery and know that the patient me in this case is going to come back four hours later and I just wanted to hug you and say thank you because even then I, it's just incredible well so another thing let's talk about again just culture any culture it's important i don't care what business we're in to hire the right people particularly are there any tips that you can share about how you know it's a good fit when you're hiring someone well let's let's start with the the, the simple things we're looking for people who are smart and people who are nice right hopefully they go together generally uh in our office they do <laughs> and so you start with that it, when you're hiring if you've got uh, an individual who's had extensive experience uh, let's say on the clinical side on mm -hmm. the technical side that's clearly a an added plus and can sway a decision but we have a number of people on our staff who have been trained in our office and who have uh, gone through credentialing in our office, came to us without that know-how, so to speak, without that experience, but were able to learn along the way and deliver great care with us and, frankly, build careers for themselves. And they've been with you a long time. Right. Well, we have many employees mm -hmm. who have been with us a long time. And that, that's the proof of the pudding. Well, we're grateful for that. <laughs> well, it goes right along with another thing that you've uh, – mention that helps build the culture i'm just all about culture because wouldn't it be wonderful if every practice in your uh in your industry medical and every company had the kind of culture that anybody would want to work for and that's not the case and i think it's important to always have leaders like you whatever the industry is to share how you do that and one of the things that um you also had mentioned before the show was the emphasizing of um, to the staff uh, things like generosity and forgiveness. Talk to us about those kinds of things, the soft skills. Well, the soft skills are critical. I mean, we're looking for people who understand what kindness means. Because oftentimes, well, as you put it, uh, going through cataract surgery is anxiety provoking, right? I mean, nobody is going to any kind of surgical, any kind of surgical procedure, especially related to their eyes. Uh, that sense of sight is so important. Uh, no one's going into that without some uh, 
some modicum of fear or or uh, or anxiety and it's critical that our that our staff be understanding of that and that they have a sort of a natural kindness what does kindness amount to it seems to me largely it it comes down to a generous spirit mm. uh, and uh, a sense of uh, embrace of the patient, mm -hmm. a sense of looking after the well-being of the patient, of exerting oneself, going above and beyond in behalf of the patient, uh, but also um, on the part of the surgeon, forgiving oneself uh, if, uh, if uh, things uh, don't go perfectly smoothly every minute of the day, or uh, forgiving a, a staff member for a mistake, mm. but also on the part of the staff, their uh, level of forgiveness to, for, to forgive uh, uh, their colleagues hmm. in a circumstance where a mistake has been made or uh, inadequate attention has been applied. Uh, a, a, an, an idea of collaboration, that uh, we're all in this together and that uh, nothing happens effectively, efficiently, or successfully without group effort and that uh, you know that uh, if somebody uh, lags behind or or uh, makes a mistake that uh, they get a second chance so so there are people who have come to us the people we've hired we thought up front that they would be excellent maybe didn't turn out to have the skills that we anticipated but we have leadership in our office, uh, for example, an office manager who is looking after the idea of improvement and is willing to be patient with people when they exemplify a level of dedication and commitment uh, and a willingness to learn. Mm -hmm. There's a level of patience that we're able to offer to get them to a higher level. And that doesn't work in every circumstance, but it works in most circumstances. And so we have a lot of people in our office who have come to us super talented and super well-trained, and, and we're grateful when that occurs. But we also have uh, folks who have learned within our four walls and who deliver great care, and getting them to that condition hasn't necessarily been a, a straight line, but we've gotten them... Uh, to that level nevertheless so career opportunities career, once career there. opportunities we've yeah. had a number of people who have, who have you know moved to other cities for example from dallas and uh have taken those skills and been very very successful elsewhere or frankly gone to other offices where there might have been a better opportunity to rise to a different position uh -huh. based on the learning the experience, the the opportunities they had in our office. So so, and and that's got to be. Uh, I think that message has to be clearly delivered. In other words, you got to you got to you got to walk the talk. Yes, yes, you do, and it shows if you don't. Right. And you know, the, I think the final thing I would ask is, um, how do you have fun at your office? I mean, it's a it's a physician's office. How do you make sure there's some fun? there's pride? We know that. Well, well, well first of all, I, I think 
a lot of that has to come from the physicians. We have other excellent physicians in our office. Dr. Hawk and I have been in practice together now for 33 years. Uh, Dr. Swanson joined us about 10 years ago. Dr. Mirza, our young associate, is, uh, is doing a terrific job, and she's been with us now for a couple of years. But the enthusiasm and the sense of taking pleasure in what we do and enjoying what we do, mm -hmm. I mean, that's got to be transmitted from the top. And beyond that, we, you know, get together occasionally for uh, outside of the office bowling parties. We uh, bring in pizza uh, to the office uh, for the staff on a regular basis. I think essentially letting your staff know through your behavior that you are happy to be doing what you're doing. That you're a fun kind of guy. Well, that, you know... <laughs> You know, cracking a joke now and then, but uh, frankly, uh, enjoying the ride. And I think that shows. I mean, that shows in any business. You've got to, you've got to just be human. So, um, speaking of being human, the one time that I saw that humor was Halloween. When I saw you and everyone in that office dressed up, and the doors, the doors outside had had. There was a contest, I think, on who could which door of going into the right. offices could be the funniest or well, whatever. That kind, of, that kind of thing. And during the yeah. uh, Christmas or holiday season, uh, they decorate the doors as well. Uh -huh. And all of that's coming, in a sense, spontaneously from from the staff. That's great. We're encouraging it, but that's uh, that's in a sense staff leadership that. Uh, gets us into that kind of situation because <laughs> they want a party right <laughs> doctor if uh, someone is so inclined to seek your practice out where would they uh, find you <laughs> well we have a really good phone number <laughs> <laughs> all right we, and it we, is... we, we, we have a we have a website of course but yeah. our phone number is uh, 214-987-2020 okay two zero two zero. say it one more time 214-987-2020. Okay. Now, I promised you that we'd have fun today. Did you have fun? Absolutely. It wasn't difficult, was it? No, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> I think that's the pleasure of podcasting. It's just fun, and you just talk, and you never know exactly what we're going to be talking about. I want to thank you because I know you've got a busy, busy practice, and for you to take the time to come meant a lot. So thank well, you. Well, this is so much fun for that. me, and it's uh, delightful to not only have been able to work with you in my office where you were a patient, but uh, uh, you're, you're uh, a wonderful conversationalist, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to enjoy that as well. Thank you. We might just have to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we've talked about a whole lot of things, and I think you will agree with me that the, the um, concepts and just the discussion around what any practice or company or firm can do to stay the course in keeping it a place where people will enjoy working because if we enjoy getting up in the morning and we have that little flame inside of us that says oh I've got another day where I can go someplace and know I'm bringing value that's the number one motivator for anyone who's working anywhere is to feel valued so, Dr. Chip, 
that's the kind of practice you have. Thank you for being on the show. Thank and you I for wish having you me. All the continued successes. And until next time, just keep in mind this is the kind of work when we think about um, what does Valerie and Company do. I'm going to make it simple. I help companies and individuals do it right. It's just that simple. <laughs> so give me a call, too, or email at Valerie at ValerieAndCompany.com. Until next time, stay authentic, be real, and build your brand. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.